Hello and welcome to episode 33 of Girls Gone Canon, Sansa 1, an intro to A Feast for Crows. I am Chloe, one of your hosts. You can find me on the internet at liesandarborgold.com. And I'm another one of your hosts, Eliana. You might know me as Glass Table Girl from the Song of Ice and Fire subreddit or Maester Monthly, or as Arithmetric on Twitter. Happy New Year! Yeah, it's the new year when you guys are getting this. We are actually recording on New Year's Eve. We're celebrating together with our girl, Sansa Stark, Sandra Bolton. <laughs> yeah, truly. <laughs> That's what we're doing. Turning over a new leaf. Yes, turning over a In new leaf. Maybe some new hairstyles going on right yeah i hear that's a thing people do in the new year i saw a comic about getting a new haircut it was by charluby who does the pigeon comics (laughs) it's like i'm gonna be a better person new me you're new me they were like no i just decided to get new hair being better was too hard well that's what's so great is in this chapter we're about to discuss in a feast for crows sansa truly opens up with new year new me so new hair new me exactly as a little bird, just like a pigeon. Anyway. Aww, little pigeon. Wait, is Sansa secretly Wait. little pigeon? Whoa. Theories, my friend. We got them. <laughs> We're going to kick off, though, of course, with some emails and tweets of note. But this is not an email or a tweet. Because, yes. again, everyone, you can leave comments on Podbean. Every time. It's so surprising. My mind is blown every time. This one is, I'm in trouble. <laughs> This one is by Piano Diva 11. Would you say this one is putting me in the doghouse, Eliana? It truly is. And I'm like, I mean, I'm not going to get you out of there. I know. I mean, I do it to myself. I'm going to just sit there and be like, oh, hello, Snoopy. <laughs> we all know I'm more Lucy than anything, okay? I'll have to think about who I am. Probably Charlie Brown. Piano Diva 11's comment. Please read it for us. <laughs> Piano Diva 11 says, I have been absolutely loving this series. You are both articulate, intelligent, warm, and funny, and I appreciate every episode. I just have to comment on a moment in this part of the books that drives me crazy in the way people tend to analyze it. And I feel like it got missed here as well due to a bit of overzealous sand sand shipping. When Sansa wakes from her dream in the Eyrie and says to the old blind dog, I wish you were a lady. I think she truly meant it. Sandor demanding a song from her, as in the dream, was really not his best moment, as you noted in a previous podcast. Come on, it was full-on rapey. And Sansa is still rightfully traumatized by how all the men in her life have treated her thus far. Despite the cloak and dogger foreshadowing. Can we just pause and give praise to this pun? Even though it's putting you in the doghouse, whatever. Sorry, Chloe. Pun. (laughs) It's my brand. (laughs) Did, are you Piano Diva 11? I am not. Is this, Eliana, this is your podcast, too. You can talk about things on it. You don't have to make a fake account and leave a comment on our Podbean, which you didn't even know how to do. So I'm amazed about this part. I'm only a diva, no piano. I took piano lessons as a child and uh, did not continue them. Same. Very, very early. We break stereotypes here. And <laughs> jumping back in. Piano Diva 11 says, The Hound has not yet rehabilitated himself to the point where he is truly behaving like a decent human in the story. And I've always seen this moment as Sansa rightfully declaring, To hell with you all! I want to protect myself! Do it for yourself, baby girl. Piano Diva 11, if that is her real name, (laughs) Eliana. Piano Diva 11 makes really great points, and I do love that part of it too, but the problem is... And I'm going to present this to you guys, because if you're listening to this podcast this far, I think you probably already know this. 
I'm never going to change. I'm never going to act right. I ain't ever going to change. I wish I would change. I wish like I would not be like this. But at this point, I've just come to accept how I am. Also, this is what happens when you get two big Sansan fans on an episode and Eliana is put in the corner and nobody puts Eliana or Piano Diva 11 Weird on that shirt in the corner. <laughs> Uh, so yes, I am sorry that we underrepresented that point. I do like and encourage that viewpoint. I just personally can't promise to ever change the way that I am. I don't know if that's a good compromise, you know? Man, what happened to character growth, Chloe? <laughs> what happened to character arcs and character development? It turns out I'm the villain. I'm just gonna throw this out there. Piano Diva 11 and me being the same person is Sansa and Lil Pigeon being the same person, okay? Whoa, mind is blown. The best tinfoil in the whole thing. Wait, what? what? Okay. Oh, you're trying to say you're not piano. That is indeed what I'm saying. But I mean, next thing we know, Little Pigeon's revealed to be Sansa, and there goes my comparison. <laughs> well, it is a sci fi story, so. Anyway, Piano Diva 11, I want to say yes. <laughs> I agree with a lot of the things that you say here. I do think that scene is very rapey. That's why I'm like, oh, this is weird at the Blackwater. And I do think, though, uh, this is a side note. It's interesting that Santa tends to wake up from dreams in general, thinking about Lady. She's always like, oh, Lady's here with me. Then she's like, no, she's not. Anyway, digressing. But I also think that while I do condemn Sandor for a lot of his actions and the way that he treats Sansa actually turns me off quite a bit, I feel that something that our cast brings to the table is this different perspective on Sandor, that background and humanization of him and that analysis of him is very much indicative of a larger thing that George is exploring in A Song of Ice and Fire. It is to an extent, right? Because it's not to the extent that some people say it is like Gregor Clegane is bad. And that's just not negotiable. Sandor is a greater character. But I'm also of the opinion that like just because bad things happen to you and it makes your perspective and the things that happen in your life understandable and explainable, it's also not a justification for perpetuating bad actions and acts, which is something that we are likely to explore more and talk about more in the Bran and Tyrion chapters. Whenever we get to those. And especially in Arya. Oh, yeah. I mean, we're going to see that in Arya. We're going to see it with Sandor, obviously. She explores a lot of those gray characters. And I totally agree. I mean, the, the big thing is Sandor is obviously not just a caricature like Ramsay Bolton is. We don't get that exploration of character to know, ah, oh, Ramsay, like we see why Ramsay's fucked up. And then he's just fucked up. And a lot of this, since it is a reread, I guess my tone probably comes off about it, especially with what we know now. Uh, I'm not just considering, you know, just in the moment because, yeah, Sandor's being pretty garbage, but it really adds more, obviously, to the overall buildup of him and Arya's chapter when he's, quote, dying and he's just sobbing about all the awful things he's done. And he's admitting, like, I was a prick, like, I did this, I was the worst person, like, just fucking kill me, which I, I just think it really builds up to his overall character. So not to take away from Sansa's, obviously, even in this coming chapter, she thinks about the Hound and how he at least had protected her in, you know, proposition to you put Littlefinger next to him and, well, there you go, garbage. <laughs> yeah, I think that it just ends up that Sansa is put in these positions and we're going to obviously discuss this a lot more in this upcoming episode where, where there's a tension in those characters who end up being her protectors but and tutors where they are not necessarily looking out for her best interest but also... She has to rely on them. And that's something that will obviously 
come to the fore as the story continues. Yeah, especially in, the in these feast chapters too. Yeah, in in feast in the winds of winter when you know it comes out <laughs> next week. The the yeah this year it's coming out in 2018. It's coming out later. No, today. 2019. I'm I'm just saying. You know, why can't we be optimistic for the rest of this year? Why not? Let's end the 2018 on a high note. <laughs> yeah. By the time you all listen to this in 2019, when the winter will be out. <laughs> I'm just going to, like, yell about it. I can't wait. This month we're taking a break from doing our Dance of the Dragons chapters just so we can do an Elaine chapter from the Winds of Winter for our sample chapter because we're going to finish up Sansa in the next few weeks. Uh, and that chapter, we're going to talk a lot about Sansa's future, and I'm really excited because there's so much waiting to go off in The Winds of Winter, and there's going to be such a power shift in Sansa's chapters, and that is just key mm-hmm. right there. That is what that is what I want. <laughs> exactly. So, can't wait. Next week. Exactly. <laughs> 2019, it's our year. It's our year. <laughs> <laughs> so, with that, let's, get, let's jump in, all right? Let's talk about the things that have happened in the previous few years, uh, where we have... The Sansa Feast for Crows chapters. In Sansa, A Feast for Crows, something that's really interesting is George especially gives the character naming Theon, having the ghost in Winterfell, the prince of Winterfell, and of course, you know, Aaron Greyjoy with the prophet, the forsaken, and the winds of winter, the 800 different Asha chapter titles, different characters with, you know, actually the same characters, but different names, quote unquote. Uh, even Arya with Mercy or, you know, the blind girl. The play on identity, just like the episode we did in October for different identity and disguises in A Song of Ice and Fire really comes to the forefront in Sansa's chapters. And I think that the structure of the naming is very interesting in A Feast for Crows because we start off with one Sansa chapter and then it's versus two Elaine chapters. I think the last two of her chapters in The Winds of Winter will probably be her returning to Sansa 1 and 2 finally, and that we're going to see the first three, Elaine 1, 2, and 3. Yeah, I like that idea that we're going to come back to Sansa... At least the last chapter. Being her own identity, yeah, in the last few chapters. And I think that's actually a perfect way to end it, to end The Winds of Winter, especially if the next book, which is not going to be entitled A Time for Wolves, is something like that, or A Dream of Spring. It makes sense for Sansa to return to being her Stark identity. Yeah, absolutely. I think the last chapter of The Winds of Winter, just one of my little theories that we're totally going to delve into in that patron episode, is that Sansa will be either boarding the ship to go to White Harbor, or she'll be, you know, sitting at the head of her column and getting on her horse ready to go home. One of the two. She's going to be leading the Eerie, though, to Winterfell in her last chapter. Either there, either leaving, one of the two. Yeah, something's happening there. George likes to end, when he can, he likes to end a character's arc or chapter with them in a different position or poised for the next part of their journey. Yeah, there's a lot of duality in Sansa's A Feast for Crows chapters that we're going to learn a ton about. Uh, It's not just in her chapter titles. There's also a lot at play in the way that she dresses and looks. We're about to read a lot of contrast of her dress and hair from her Sansa to Elaine role. She's going to have darker colors, muted, a maid of winter kind of look about her, so to speak. She's downplaying her looks and clothing colors to, you know, come off as a natural-born daughter who's lived her life in the nunnery, which, of course, is something that a noble lady from the North would actually probably look more like, right? They're a little more conservative with dress, uh, a little more conservative with hair. She's darkening her hair with dye from Tyrosh that, obviously, as we know, is going to run out sooner or later. So the veil is this ticking time bomb, and 
these chapters, as we go forward, load up that powder keg and assemble people at opposing sides and goals in the veil, with Sansa all between the middle of it. It's that ever-flowing power vacuum that we learn about in A Game of Thrones and Catelyn and Tyrion chapters. For sure, and something that's going to come to the forefront in these chapters is we get to see all of those power dynamics you were talking about in the Vale. It's a microcosm of King's Landing as you see all of these different lords and ladies there vying for influence in the Vale. And it's a little more subtle, right? Because King's Landing, we're told that everyone's a liar here and the stakes are big they're also big in the veil but everyone has to at least pretend to be civil to one another unlike in king's landing where you just have joffrey being like ridiculous and in the veil people are putting on those airs and playing their roles and creating those those airs the airs you were talking about the airs <laughs> yeah brokering uh, alliances amongst one another it'll be it'll be good It'll be great. And then, of course, as Elaine, Sansa has a lot of that safety that she didn't have in her old identity, especially in the lion's den of King's Landing. And A Feast for Crows in the Veil gives her that opportunity to begin learning by doing, as opposed to just, like, trying to fly under the radar and being lectured at by drunk people all the time. Like, how many drunk people were lecturing at Sansa? Throughout, like, A Game of Thrones and The Clash of Kings, everyone, everyone she encountered was drunk and lecturing at her. Yeah, she's starting to actually be able to walk around and do things. I mean, this is great. We don't get to see Sansa as an actual person with actual actions. Usually it's her being passive in her internal POV. Exactly. And she gets to express annoyance. She gets to express annoyance outwardly, so that's going to be fun. And... The situation becomes a little more complicated, as we were discussing earlier, where Sansa's captors before would beat her if she did something wrong, or for just, like, no fucking reason, because they were terrible. And Sansa's imprisonment is muddied here because she's wrestling with what Peter is asking her to do and learn, a lot of which is incredibly unethical, but she feels that she has no other allies. And A Feast for Crows is very much her lens into one of those big players and villains of A Song of Ice and Fire, Littlefinger, through Sansa's perspective as she wrestles with her idea of him. Yeah, she's dealing with a lot of projections from Littlefinger. She's dealing with basically from riches to rags, the opposite of what Littlefinger does. So when he stands here in this chapter in his brand new fancy velvet outfit, Sansa has been forced to discard her claim, which to her, that's obviously heaven. She's like, thank God. Now I get to just breathe for a minute because everybody only wants me for my claim. But she is completely just like subverting everything she ever wanted so that she can be a bastard born girl and survive in the veil. And not only has Littlefinger kind of forced her into that, but I mean, every single move, everything he does, every word he says is laced with poison that immediately implicates Sansa. So she really is kind of stuck for the moment, but we're going to get into how she's really not actually that stuck. And then, of course, A Feast for Crows picks up at the end of A Storm of Swords. However, originally there was going to be a five-year gap. A legendary five-year gap, yes. So, the five-year gap, originally when George was conceiving of A Song of Ice and Fire, in his plan, he had all the things that happened from A Game of Thrones to A Storm of Swords, and he was going to do a time skip. People love time skips. People have mixed feelings about time skips, I'm joking. And was going to jump forward five years, which would have given a lot of time for some of the seeds that he was planting to grow. And 
it would have worked out really well for a lot of these younger characters like Arya, Sansa, Jon, etc. But turns out it was actually very difficult for characters like Cersei. Like, what were we going to say? She just was being weird in King's Landing the whole time? Yeah, she was just, like, being crazy for a handful of years. So he ended up discarding that idea, which led to a long gap in real life between the publication of A Storm of Swords and A Feast for Crows. <laughs> the five-year gap is really just the friends we made along the way. <laughs> That's the... <laughs> how, how many years... That's the seven-year gap that we are in now. Seven, a holy number. <laughs> I think we should all praise it. Sansa is 13 in the first chapter in A Feast for Crows. And so that means she would be 18 if George had his five-year gap. Uh, as Elaine, next chapter we'll hear this, but she talks about how she decided she's 14, not 13. It's close enough to 13 and she can get away with it, obviously, because she's tall for her age and she looks older and she's, you know, flowered, as we've discussed. Uh, but she is actually 13. So she'd be 18 if George had had his five-year gap. And we talked about some of those possible come-into-my-castle theories with Littlefinger and Sansa last episode with Lady Gwyn from Radio Westeros. Really great episode if you didn't listen. I don't know what you're doing with your reading order, but that's fine. Good luck. Uh, if George had gone through with this gap, though, does that mean it was going to be a sex thing? George really? was going to make it a sex thing, wasn't he? Even if it was Sansa, like, owning her weapon. Come on, George. Was it really going to be a sex thing? I think it was, because we're going to go into this a little later, but the age of majority in Westeros, or when someone's no longer considered a maiden, is 16. They become a woman after that. And, I mean, Catelyn Stark was to marry Brandon mm -hmm. Stark when she was 18, so that's pretty average age for that now one thing about that liana was betrothed to robert uh at 13 and so i'm guessing they were gonna marry at 16 maybe but i mean there's also southern ambitions pushing that really hard yeah so yeah if it's not a political alliance then it seems like the normal was really 16 to 18 i do think we're very much going to get a lot of the stuff we were supposed to see from Sansa after the five-year gap like we did with not to go too much into it, the Arya Mercy chapter. Yes. Which I'm like, this is really uncomfortable. But George was just like, this is my vision for it. And we're just going to change the ages. And I'm like, I guess. So we're still going to get that storyline. We just also get this great training montage in the middle. Which it is a great training montage. It is. It really is. There's a lot, especially on this. I mean, it's a dense chapter with a lot of information. I'm really excited to keep dissecting. And with that... Let's jump into our lightning round. Let's get started on A Feast for Crows. Prologue. Pate's unrequited crush and ambition opens the door for an alchemist to get through. The prophet. The dampier senses a king's moot on the rise. <laughs> the captain of guards. Doran faces tension from the sand snakes and makes a move to show his loyalty to the crown. Cersei won. Cersei awakens to a nightmare. Lord Tywin is dead. Whose nightmare is that? Not mine. <laughs> I guess Cersei's, since it's her point of view. Brienne won. On the road again, Brienne meets a hedge knight with a similar goal as hers, finding a girl of three and ten with red hair. Who's that? <laughs> you don't know her. Uh, I mean, I don't. Simple one. John does what every other person wishes they could have, which is they pay entirely for Sam's university tuition. It is off to college in Old Town for Sam. Man, Sally Mace. Suck on it. 
Is it a coincidence that Sally Mae has an S and an A and an M? Oh my god. And two L's like Samwell. There's just no W. You see exactly where I'm going with this. Exactly. <laughs> Arya won. Arya arrives in Braavos by sea and enters the House of Black and White. Cersei, too. After Tywin's wake, Cersei finds difficulty in establishing a new hand of the king. Jaime won. Seething with guilt over his father's death and Tyrion's escape, he thinks back on the death of Rhaegar and Aerys. Later at the funeral, he tells Tommen to go away inside. Damn. Brienne, too. Brienne searches for Sansa and Dantos in Duskendale, but turns up with a new squire instead. Hashtag pod pain. And of course, that puts us at Sansa 1. Sansa and Littlefinger must serve the eerie lords lies in Arbor Gold. <laughs> I thought you'd appreciate that. Uh. <laughs> Only true Chloe friends will know. <laughs> if you can see our show notes, that's what this is. You'll see it. There are a lot subscribe. of really good uh, inside jokes in our show notes. I don't know if anyone actually reads them. <laughs> I don't even think I read them, so... Our show notes. Only the things off on the side. Only the things we're not going to ever actually say. The nonsense. <laughs> so, this chapter opens with Sansa Stark, who is remembering the time when she was age young, and <laughs> tried to kidnap a singer and force him to stay in Winterfell for half a year. This is the most Sansa Stark crap in the world. It really is. She's like, no, don't, don't make him stay. <laughs> Some girls want ponies. Anyway, so the singer is an older man, and eventually Ned is like, no, he's a person and we have to let him go. He's got a life. And I guess, I mean, I'm sure the singer probably would have been perfectly fine with a cushy tenured job as court singer of Winterfell. But Ned was like, I'm not wasting any more money on this. <laughs> he's saying all the songs he knew. Ned was like, it's over. Ned promises her that other singers are going to come. And boy, do they. And not the way she thought or wanted. But that was when she was a little girl, and foolish. She was a maiden now, three and ten and flowered. All her nights were full of song, and by day she prayed for silence. So I just wanted to call something out here about Sansa thinking of herself as a maiden now of three and ten and flowered. We have kind of touched on this, but not entirely on this concept of maidenhood in Westeros and in a... In a Stospeak Martin called Age of Sexual Relations in Westeros, George goes into this a bit, but we're going to talk about how he says, However, for girls, the first flowering is also very significant. And in older traditions, a girl who has flowered is a woman, fit for both wedding and bedding. But a girl who has flowered but not yet attained her 16th name day is in a somewhat ambiguous position. Part child, part woman, a quote-unquote maid, in other words, fertile but innocent, beloved of the singers. Which is a funny mm -hmm. way to phrase it. She's beloved of the singers, but now she... The singers are no longer beloved of hers. That is really interesting. It directly reflects on what Sansa's dealing with right now, which, of course, uh, what George is saying in that, especially the beloved of the singers, is that the singers love to speak of the maids, you know, uh, which, of course, makes it really easy for old dudes to creepy groom cute young girls like Sansa. But, you know, whatever. Uh, it turns out the songs are all lies, all of them. <laughs> I do love that Sansa's thoughts all kind of revolve around how she used to think of her life as a song, uh, just like when she thinks on like Ele Eleanor Terrell and all those girls, how they're, you know, young, they've never seen battle, they're nothing but young girls, and like, I pity them, I envy them, and of course that leads into, you know, she, she thought her song was beginning that day, now it was ended, uh, you know, all these 
just these thoughts about her life as a song and how she just is praying for survival at this point. She doesn't want actual songs. And we see that because Marillion haunts her day and night. The eerie, of course, the marble that it's made of echoes. Sansa begs Peter to make it stop, but he has to wait for Nestor to see Marillion and for Marillion to make his confession to killing Liza before a crowd. So Sansa, of course, has to suffer multitudes of songs by him. Jenny's song, John Cole and Florian, The Dance of the Dragons. All of which are songs that are now relatable at this point in the story. The line follows that he sang of betrayals and the murders most foul of hanged men and bloody vengeance. He sang of grief and sadness. Some of the other songs that we learn Marillion has been singing during this time are The Day They Hanged, Black Robin, or A Mother's Tears, and The Reigns of Castamere. And then he ends with On a Misty Morn, which is a song about a mother looking for her son after battle, and then they're going to go home to Windish Town. And all of, all of these songs of betrayals, murders, most foul, hangmen, and bloody vengeance are, I think, very poignant in this chapter, which again, is picking up after the previous chapter to an extent, and which is followed by the Lady Stoneheart reveal. And this hanging of folks, which is what Lady Stoneheart is doing, and then how we have a mother's tears. We There are discussions about Alyssa Aaron's tears and how that connects to Catelyn becoming Lady Stoneheart with her mother's tears. And then, of course, the connection with the Reigns of Casimir is like pretty obvious. And then, of course, that feeling of a mother mourning the loss of her son, which is in the lyrics of Anna Missy Morn. But I just want to get sad about Wendish Town for a second, because... Wendish Town is, or was, a real place in A Song of Ice and Fire, but in A Game of Thrones, because of the War of the Five Kings, or this might be in Clash, we learned that Wendish Town was actually destroyed by raiders in the Westerlands, and not just like, oh, things are sad and things are destroyed. No, every inhabitant was killed. It was burned down. It's a ghost town now, basically, and there's nothing there. No one lives there. It's really devastatingly sad. So Sansa worries that Nestor will know that they're lying. She remembers meeting the man on their way up the mountain, and Littlefinger says he would never let anything happen to his daughter. Sansa, of course, thinks one of the most epic lines in the entire series. I am not your daughter, she thought. I am Sansa Stark, Lord Eddard's daughter and Lady Catelyn's, the blood of Winterfell. She did not say it, though. There's a lot to talk about in that passage. We could go on for like hours about Stockholm Syndrome as well. Like the whole passage is just her, you know, thinking, but you know, Littlefinger helped her. He, uh, he was helpful and he was nice. It was, you know, she can't be that mean to him. Yeah, there's a lot of that going on throughout this chapter. And he kind of forces her into this position because now Sansa's worried, like, what if Marillion tells Nestor Royce the truth? And then Peter corrects her and says, no, no, if Marillion says something, he's lying. That's not the truth. Anything that we say, their truth is the truth. Fucking sociopath. Holy shit. I know. A touch of fear will not be out of place, Elaine. You've seen a fearful thing. Nestor will be moved. Peter studied her eyes as if seeing them for the first time. You have your mother's eyes. Honest eyes and innocent, blue as the sunlit sea. When you're a little older, many a man will drown in those eyes. Like you? Asshole. You're first. You're gonna drown. Except it's gonna be your blood, not her eyes. Bitch. It's still satisfying, though, that end of season seven. Despite all the rest of it. There were good episodes and moments. There were good scenes. Yeah. 
Peter then tells Sansa that they have to lie, just like the lie that we told little Robert Aaron. And Sansa comments, but that was to spare Robert's feelings. And Littlefinger says, this time the lie is to spare us. <laughs> and this lie may spare us, else you and I must leave the Eyrie by the same door lies are used. Peter picked up his quill again. We shall serve him lies in Arbor Gold, and he'll drink them down and ask for more. I promise you. He's serving me lies as well, Sansa realized. They're comforting lies, though, and she thought them kindly meant. A lie's not so bad if it is kindly meant. If only she believed them. <sighs> it's not true. I'm going to stop you there, Sansa. <laughs> that lie is not kindly meant. No. There's a lot of interesting discussion on lies here, and I think that it isn't a coincidence that we are reminded again in this chapter that Sansa is in fact Ned Stark's daughter, not Peter's, as we all know. Peter says that his lies are kindly meant, but we see from, you know, the way that he did wrong to our boy Ned and killing Liza Aaron that those are not kindly actions. Someone literally died. And you contrast that with the way that Ned Stark who himself was also a liar, as we've discussed during the Eddard chapters, he's hiding this giant secret that, in fact, was kindly meant regarding the parentage of Jon Snow, and it was to keep him alive. And it's, of course, a reminder of Ned's last act of honor, where he, again, lies to the realm, telling them that he is, in fact, a traitor who conspired to steal Joffrey's throne. But he lies in order to save the life of his little girls, unaware that Arya escaped. Yeah. That's a kindly meant lie. Absolutely. That's the kind of kindly meant lie that uh, I'm into. Unfortunately, there, this kind of does question that line for Sansa, you know, of how far is she willing to go with kindly meant lies, right? Like, hmm. Also, I think it's interesting that this is Sansa's lying game while Arya has her own lying game. Oh, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. This is Sansa's yeah. mask. This is Sansa's bag of masks that she pulls out right here. Exactly. She has to do it without an actual face. She must do it by actions and deeds. Yes. Sansa breaks into this big internal struggle about Littlefinger and how he had saved her, but had never actually saved her when she really needed it. He only saved her when the moment was convenient. So, of course... We have to say them out loud. We have to read these passages because it's some of the best writing in Sansa's Feast chapters. These are, uh, these chapters are so good. Just, you can feel the eerie. You can just understand Littlefinger's gross pedo smile. God, he's the fucking worst. I wish we'd get a fucking job out of the eerie. <laughs> You'll never find a job in this town again. He saved Elaine, his daughter, a voice within her whispered. But she was Sansa too, and... Sometimes it seemed to her that the Lord Protector was two people as well. He was Peter, her protector, warm and funny and gentle, but he was also Littlefinger, the lord she'd known at King's Landing, smiling slyly, stroking his beard as he whispered in Queen Cersei's ear. And Littlefinger was no friend of hers. When Joff had her, when Joff had her beaten, the imp defended her, not Littlefinger. When the mob sought to rape her, the hound carried her to safety, not Littlefinger. When the Lannisters wed her to Tyrion against her will, Sir Garland the Gallant gave her comfort and also poison, but not Littlefinger. <laughs> That's not in the part of the book, sorry. Littlefinger never lifted so much as his little finger for her. I mean, that's not true. I'm being gross. It's a gross thing to think about. Why did mind. you... I don't want to know how little his finger is, Randa. <laughs> Randa Diva 11. 
I'm excited to get to the Miranda Royce. Oh my god, you know you're gonna be reading Miranda the whole time. You're already excited, aren't you? Oh, I love their friend of me situation. I know. I can't wait for you to just be like real, like ridiculous. Like I, I want to hear your boobies shake through the computer (laughs) when you tell when you do her voice. Yeah. Your bastard babies. Okay, I don't know. We'll work on it. I'm gonna work. I'm gonna work on my Miranda voice and think about what I really think channels her. Oh my god. So you, so you admit it. You think you're pretty. <laughs> Vintage, so fetch. I heard that the Night's Watch has a new Lord's Commander. Oh, Jon Snow. Yeah, how'd you know? <laughs> so Sansa talks herself down after she begins to think so poorly on Littlefinger and. Reminds herself that he risked everything to whisk her out of King's Landing. So the passage ends with, I have no place but here, Sansa thought miserably, and no true friend but Peter. She spends this chapter justifying Peter and his actions, and it makes me so sad because the saddest part of her talking herself into humanizing and caring for her captor is she doesn't actually need him. She doesn't know that yet, but she can't go running around yelling, I'm Sansa Stark right now, but... The Eerie set up perfectly to allow Sansa to come into her own there. Uh, They're already guilty and disappointed because Liza didn't lead them into the war for fighting for the Starks. And she has her dad's supporters there to her claim on the North. And she has her wits that Littlefinger is also teaching her how to lie expertly. So when the time's right, she doesn't really need Harry the heir. She doesn't need the up-jumped Littlefinger. She just needs herself. And 20 good men. I'm honestly mad that the 20 good men thing it might be an actual real thing that is repeated in the It books. is! It's horrible! <laughs> I think I only really realized that during the reread of this podcast. Yeah, same. Like, it makes me so sad. I'm like, man, we made fun of that so hard. I'm still going to make fun of it, but I'm also mad that it's real. Yeah, ab- ab- absolutely. Uh, speaking of absolutely, absolutely to all the things that you just said here, you can see... <laughs> You can see Sansa wrestling with that cognitive dissonance about Littlefinger here. And of course, understanding that what Peter did was bad, but now she's kind of like roped in, all right? And she's forced to hide because of all of these enemies around her. And she has to buy into the lies that he's said about Liza and that Liza's confessions were just ravings of madness, even though, I mean, yes, but also no. Yes, she falls asleep to Merlion's music after that. So it's interesting because... You're hearing all this, you know, these are the songs that we have to sing, Sansa, to these people and these stories. And then she's just surrounded by all this music that she doesn't want to hear. Man, does does anyone want to just get Sansa Stark a lemon cake and a blunt? Maybe not in that order. We can switch it up. And like maybe a really nice bubble bath, like a bath. Are you saying you want to give her a lemon cake in the shape of the giant's lance? Um, yeah, but it would be bigger because bigger's better. Little finger take notes. <laughs> So together uh, with, you know, all these thoughts about Sansa wanting Marillion to shut the fuck up, I do love this language from earlier in the chapter because, as you said, there's a lot of really great writing in here. No matter where she went in the castle, no matter where she went in the castle, Sansa could not escape the music. It floated up the winding tower steps, found her naked in her bath, supped with her at dusk, and stole into her bedchamber even when she latched the shutters tight. It came in on the cold thin air, and like the air, it chilled her. Uh, it's really so good writing, bad. because here we see that the music just isn't a thing anymore. The way that it's written, the music becomes personified and has come to actively torture Sansa. She cannot hide from it. And Marillion in his singing has become this little, like, telltale heart sort of beating of guilt for Sansa. 
Next, we have Nestor, Royce, and his son, and the rest of their party arrive, and they have brought a dozen, not 20, a dozen knights, and a <laughs> score of men-at-arms. But today, to greet them, Peter Baelish has his lord face on. Yes, with that duality we mentioned of Peter versus Littlefinger that Sansa brings up with her quote-unquote father, we totally see something similar here, just like with Bran's comments that Ned has a lord face and a father face. Littlefinger is, of course, playing her father. And further than that, he's playing Lord Protector of the Vale, and he's playing with a lot of colors with his outfit here. Peter is super solemn. He has on gray and black velvet, which, of course, gray and black are actually House Stark's colors, their war colors. And the velvet shows this power play on his newfound position and wealth. The gray and black are harsh colors, but it's meant to show kind of emotionless. They're all wrapped around him, defending him to bring out his green eyes that kind of encompasses that greed within. More than that, than just wearing his defensive outfit, his armor to show himself as wounded to their attacks, it's his next play in his game. And the position he's also playing here is Sansa's father. He is wearing the Stark colors. Also, I just realized this and I'm an idiot. They're mourning colors. Oh, for Liza. Yeah. Yeah. That too. He's... <laughs> He's pretending. <laughs> He's theoretically mourning Liza. Theoretically. <laughs> theoretically. Sounds great on paper. Yeah. All the things you said here, it's a great discussion on identity because Feast, as you were saying earlier, is very much the beginning where a lot of this murkiness regarding identity comes forth. And whether a person is like themselves or if it's or if they are their mask that they're wearing is definitely a huge discussion in the Arya chapters because at what point do your actions, even if you're like playing a role or pretending to be another person where is the line drawn between like oh that's just an act and this is who you really are yeah i think sansa's really uh starting to struggle with that too as we get closer in the winds of winter because you know that a uh, delicious medicine they keep feeding sweet robin that good good baby cough syrup that bubblegum flavor Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Which I think growing up, we usually did the grape flavor. But... We had both, but the bubblegum one was the best flavor. I don't think I ever had the bubblegum one. <sighs> you know what? I don't it's like adult, I'm... aspirin-y, like, bubblegummy. I don't know. You should try it. You should really. I'm not about to just go robo-tripping them. <laughs> <laughs> Next time you're sick as hell, I just want you to get baby cough syrup. It's not going to be as effective, but it's going to be good. <laughs> because I'm not a babby anymore? <laughs> I don't know. It's a good time. Fuck you, Eliana. Listen, P and Odiva 11. <laughs> okay. So Maester Coleman is standing next to Peter. He's pretty tall, but the text tells us that Peter stands out far more than Maester Coleman, even though he's a major shrimp, which is really telling about this whole stark face and outfit, this morning outfit. And Littlefinger introduces Sansa to the men as his natural daughter, Elaine. She's really scared that they'll know, and they glance over her, and she's just feeling guilty the entire time. He has her go see what's going on with Sweet Robin, why is it taking so long, and she does, because, surprise, her life doesn't suck badly enough. She's the semi-official babysitter of Sweet Robin's life. Yay. And, yeah, yay, and no pay. So, Robert Aaron didn't sleep an inch last night, surprise again, and he's full of snot, and he's red from crying all night, so she's got some work cut out for her. Marillion's been keeping him awake by playing through the night, uh, not on purpose, I'm sure, you know, good guy Marillion, but apparently someone locked Sweet Robin in his bedchambers so he couldn't get up in the middle of the night to come bother someone. Hmm. Who could have done that? <laughs> who, who would do such a thing? Honey in the air. <laughs> oh. 
I do think that there is something interesting that's happening with these chapters in Feast because, especially in regards to Sweet Robin, because, I mean, he was pretty insufferable under Liza. He was very annoying. And especially, that's the view we get of him from the first few POVs that encounter him, like Kat and Tyrion, where Kat was just like, what? the fuck is going on here with this kid and Tyrion's like fuck this little kid but I feel like Sweet Robin operated as a manifestation of Liza's own madness and bloodlust even though he's he should be his own person but through Sansa's POV without Liza there we begin to see Sweet Robin for who he really is while he's a little unhinged and comes off as vengeful as his mother he's still just like a child he's a weebab and he's very small and weak, and most of all, I think he comes off as a little pitiable, especially when you realize that he's probably doomed. And I guess that's a song of ice and fire for you when uh, Sweet Robin starts getting humanized. To be fair, he's not a bad kid. He's definitely yeah. misguided. Yeah, yeah. He wasn't raised properly. I feel for him in that same pathetic way that I feel for Liza, right? Uh, and yeah. not that there's much he could do about it. I mean, sending him to Stannis wouldn't have really helped. At this point, right? If he had actually gone to be a ward. And obviously sending him to the Lannisters wouldn't have helped. He's bratty. He's immature for his age. And he's not developmentally, you know, stable. He's totally a hassle. But he's not a bad kid. He's the result of his environment. And it's kind of a bummer because it's sad. He's being used super politically just like his mom was, you know, by her dad. He also does show an aptitude, though, that he's being used, kind of like the way that kids know an adult's being fake nice to them or kids will just call adult adults out, right? Like, he knows he's being used, as we'll hear him say in the future chapters about uh, how he feels about Harry the heir. Yeah, and it's really sad when you think about it. He knows that people are just waiting for him to die, which is not great for any kid developmentally <laughs> but i guess he has sansa who's cleaning his face softly and tells him that oh that was so wicked and awful of whoever locked you <laughs> in a room who could have done that <laughs> then we get like robert's lip quivering i was gonna come sleep with you <laughs> you should do this part i fucking know dude that's why you got locked in your room i can't fucking handle it every night <laughs> Look, she's a girl who's like yeah. just coming into her own. She just grew some titties, you know. She bleeds once a month now. And now she's got this fucking seven, eight-year-old like coming in her room, snotting all over her in the middle of the night. Of course, she literally sweet talks Lothar Brune into locking Robert's door so he can't come into her bedroom. And people say Sansa Stark is weak. Idiots. Idiots. <laughs> yeah, I mean, one of them's got to get some sleep. Yeah, she literally has the Lord Paramount locked into his bedroom. Aww. Good for you, Sansa. <laughs> Sansa is left to convince Sweet Robin to come downstairs and greet Lord Nestor, but of course he doesn't want anything to do with that. He says he has a mole and that Liza hated him. So Sansa lies to him and she says, my poor Sweet Robin. Sansa smoothed his hair back. You miss her, I know. Lord Peter misses her too. He loved her just as you do. Being able to calm this little shit down and lie smoothly to him, that's a full-time job. Yeah, it's called, I don't know, motherhood, I guess. <laughs> There's some interesting distancing here, though, that Sansa does, where she thinks about Liza, and right after that line, she thinks, She was mad and dangerous. She murdered her own lord husband and would have murdered me if Peter had not come along to save me. So Sansa seems to understand that Liza's ravings uh, might have had some truth to them, despite understanding them to also be very much mad, because how could you not? Especially when 
Liza tried to kill her and was all like, you tried to kiss Peter. And she was like, no, I really didn't. I just wanted to make a fucking snow castle, as she thinks later on. But because Sansa's having this internal battle with herself of how Peter was the one who truly got her out of King's Landing, she hasn't quite pointed the finger at him for John Aaron's death, especially since I guess she doesn't know about the letter that Liza sent Kat. Yeah, there's a lot she doesn't know about, too. Not only that, but... Also, you know, the throne room with her dad and Jane Poole. And what I'm saying is Sansa's going to have a noir arc in The Winds of Winter where she straight up goes full investigative and she unravels all of Peter's lies. And by the beginning of A Dream of Spring, she's going to have him cornered, figured out. It's going to be great. So It's going to be like Veronica Mars. Yes, only darker. Sansa fastens Sweet Robin's Aaron brooch to his soft cream and blue lamb's wool outfit, which sounds very comfy. No. And then she gets him looking very lordly. And so they go off to meet Lord Nestor and company. She tells Maddie and Gretchel, the chambermaids, can you help me get this boy downstairs? They head down to the high hall, which has been shut since Liza took her trip. <laughs> it was a really nice fall last year. It yeah. was a lovely fall. Evening. It was a nice fall trip. Sansa is frightened by the wind at the moon door and the eerie, get it, eeriness hey. of the hall. Robert says hello to Lord Nestor and he avoids discussing his mole, good job, and tells him that Marillion murdered his mother when he's asked. And Littlefinger and Elaine saw, but he did not. I'm just saying, but what if there is a mole? What if it's Miranda Royce? Blah, blah, blah. Ba -ba -bum. But also... It's a very small detail on the side, as I do. I just love that Sansa is so relieved that the eight-year-old child has remembered his manners and didn't bring up the mole, like that that got called out. She's like, and Sweet Robin was good and didn't mention the mole. Cool, good job, team. We did it. I mean, let's be fair. She was probably thinking of something Rickon or Arya would do, too. <laughs> That's true. At least Bran wouldn't. Yeah, Bran is uh, behaved. <laughs> yeah. But then now it's Sansa's turn, and she's trembling. Uh, but she manages to lie. A tear rolled down her cheek. That's good. A tear is good. By the time Sansa finishes telling her story, Robert goes into a fit. He starts screeching that he wants Marillion to fly for killing his mother, and he starts having one of his many shaking spells. Lothar Brun catches him before he falls off the weirwood throne. Maester Coleman prepares himself on standby, and by the time it's all over, he's too weak to stand. Peter sends him off to be bled to get the bad blood out, and Brune and Coleman take him away. Bad blood. <laughs> it used to be bad blood. <laughs> it's cold, Sansa's tired, and she's just ready for it to be done because turns out lying is a lot of emotional labor. And at least Nestor Royce found her lie passable, and... Of course, find some way to make it all about himself. <laughs> I always told Liza that Marillion was a stinker, he says. <laughs> Peter is defending her softly, explaining, you know, it's, it's one of those double-crossing cruel explanation and jabs, though. He says, Liza could not see the evil in men, only the good. Marillion sang sweet songs, and she mistook that for his nature, he said, flinging her out of the moon door after he sang her his own sweet song. And I'm just saying, like, Liza seems to have only seen the evil in men, except for the most evil of them. <sighs> yeah. Very strange, very strange. Albar, who is Nestor Royce's son, complains about Marillion, saying that he had written a song about two pigs sniffing around after a falcon's leavings, and when they questioned it, he said, Why, it is a song about pigs! <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, that's the funniest bullshit yeah. in the world. <laughs> 
Yeah, Marillion's it's a, a fucking rapey fucker, but that was really funny. I love that description, though, of the actual passage that you get. You get, he called us pigs, Sir Albert Royce said, a blunt, broad-shouldered knight who shaved his chin but cultivated thick black side whiskers that framed his homely face like hedgerows. Sir Albert was a younger version of his father. It really establishes the Royces and that whole very first men look they have going on. Extremely proud of, too. They're very proud of being first men. And it definitely paints the Royce coloring for us. I kind of feel like House Rice is the northern Westeros house dame. You know, with their, their mm-hmm. runes and their hieroglyphics and their we remember are their house words. And I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of connection there between the two. Mm-hmm. But the singers do seem to love to poke fun at their lords because Marillion's songs here kind of remind me of Thomas Sevenstring's song about Edmure and his floppy fish. Or even of uh, the, the singer in King's Landing and the stew, of course. Mm, Simon Silvertongue. Yes. Yeah. Hands of gold. Uh, the idea of Albert Royce and them being pigs, though, kind of reminds me again of that story of Odysseus as we discussed last episode with Lady Gwyn. And though Liza is very much a Penelope figure by doing all this she's also a bit like cersei not Mm -hmm. cersei lannister cersei that island witch yeah and she turned all the men into pigs in order to keep odysseus yes and of course that line in general is something we'll come back to in a minute but it is a feast for crows boom right there the pigs and the falcon leavings sir marwin belmore jumps on this train as well with the whole shitting on marillion thing they all are just like yeah fuck marillion we could blame him fuck that guy Marillion called Sir Marwyn Belmore Sir Ding Dong, and then Belmore uh, threatened to have his tongue out, so Marillion went to Lady Liza and hid behind her skirts. Like, bold move, though. <laughs> Marillion's the person that you want in a rap battle. <laughs> it's just like, Think about it. why? Tis a song about pigs. <laughs> Duh. Duh. You pig. <laughs> Sir Ding Dong. <laughs> Sir Ding Dong, what sick burns, dude. Yeah, uh, they kind of are. They're pretty good. Uh, Nestor does give us this further exposition on Liza giving Marillion her favor constantly. She gifted him gold and clothes and gold rings and a fancy moonstone belt. And she even deigned to give him Lord John's favorite falcon, one that King Robert had given him, which... That's a really nice touch, I think, in this story. It reminds us of that familial bond Ned, Robert, and John shared. King Robert, though, it sounds so formal. You know, I don't think of Robert as King Robert ever, so. <laughs> it's not very kingly. Uh, no. But I do love that because they're all like, John loved that falcon. And the implication is he loved that falcon, not because it was like a cool falcon, but because like the son he chose gave it to him. Yeah. Peter then grimly claims that he put an end to all of that by having Liza send Marillion away. And... It's his fault. It's my fault, as Peter, that he's dead. And then to Sansa's horror, he says, it was I who killed her. Yes, but anyway. But of course, he has tricks up his velvet sleeves. Yes. Friendos. Friendos. (laughs) My favorite part of this back and forth is that it's just this club of sad old men who are mad that Liza wanted to fuck a young, pretty singer and not them. Like, they would not have minded getting that falcon. They're all like, well, that was Lord John's favorite. You know for a fucking fact that those motherfuckers would be fine with it because they think they deserve it and that Marillion is a singer. Well, you fuck you. She gets to fuck who she wanted to, bro. You all think you deserve the veil, which is totally obviously that huge power suction, but like, whatever. They do all think that they deserve the veil. They thought they all had access to her vagina. Just cause. Mm-hmm. 
And this goes, obviously that comes to play with later on in this chapter and what happens. And along with all that, it kind of reinforces what Littlefinger was saying from the beginning. Like, who are these lords going to believe? The singer or them? Like, it's a reminder of how much the deck is just stacked against those lower classes in Westeros. As we see in moments like, you know, in The Hedge Knight, where Dunk is up against Arian Brightflame. Like, who are they going to believe? The rich crown prince or the no-name who's masquerading as a hedge knight? Or in... Even Sansa's own storyline, like, who are people going to believe? Joffrey claiming that Micah and Arya attacked him? Or are they going to believe Micah? And so wealth is equated and seen as goodness or truth. Because anyone who's poorer than them, they're like, oh, they must be lying in order to advance their position. Or because it's out of jealousy. But we see here who's actually fucking jealous. And of course, it holds consistent with that lack of justice that we see in the veil earlier on in the story when we first encounter it in Kat and Tyrion's chapters, where the falsely accused has very little chance. They're like, nah, he's guilty. And Tyrion's like, whoa, whoa, hold on. I am from a great house. And, you know, if you're not from a great house, the veil is somewhere where the truth has no place. And that's something that we're reminded of when we see Mord flashing his golden teeth. Absolutely. All these Vale Lords descending upon Littlefinger and on this whole power thing. That imagery is in the Cat and Tyrion chapters in A Game of Thrones as well, especially when Cat first gets to the Vale in her sixth chapter with Uncle Brynden. Her uncle's voice was troubled. Lord Robert, he sighed, six years old, sickly, and prone to weep if you take his dolls away. John Aaron's shrewborn heir by all the gods, yet there are some who say he's too weak to sit his father's seat. Nestor Royce has been high steward these past 14 years while Lord John served in King's Landing, and many whisper that he should rule until the boy comes of age. Others believe that Liza must marry again, and soon. Already the suitors gather like crows on a battlefield. The eerie is full of them. I might have expected that, Catalan said. Small wonder there. Liza was still young, and the kingdom of Mountain and Vale made a handsome wedding gift. So there's a whole other discussion on a woman ruling and also on Liza ruling as regent in Robert's stead that could be had here, not today. Uh, it reminds me, though, a lot of almost like an alternate version of Cersei, right? Ruling for the incapable kid, uh, being forced to, you know, take another husband, etc. It's also because Liza herself is not an Aaron, but we do see throughout history that there have been quite a few Lady of the Vales. Yes, uh at least one uh no there's been at several. least two at least two there's been quite a few i don't know the actual well there's number. yeah shara obviously was through her son through ronel mm -hmm. right jane there's, jane. there's uh yeah. emma so there's a lot there's a lot and so all the men agree yeah it wasn't your fault little finger it's fine it's fine bro <laughs> it's the singer and then they demand that oh let's bring the singer up let's all shit on him so mord brings him up and the contrast between both mord and the singer is insane because mork is this like mord uh if you'll remember is this like hulking deformed maimed uh very ripe smelling interesting <laughs> and his clothes don't fit Marillion, by contrast looked almost elegant Someone had bathed him and dressed him in a pair of sky-blue breeches and a loose-fitting white tunic with puffed sleeves, belted with a silvery sash that had been a gift from Lady Liza. White silk gloves covered his hands, and a white silk bandage spared the lords in sight of his eyes. And then Marillion sings them a new song for the lords and for Littlefinger. 
If I had eyes, I should weep. The singer's voice, so strong and sure by night, was cracked and whispery now. I loved her so. I could not bear to see her in another's arms, to know she shared his bed. I meant no harm to my sweet lady, I swear it. I barred the door so no one could disturb us whilst I declared my passion, but Lady Liza was so cold. When she told me that she was carrying Lord Peter's child, uh, a madness seized me. So, A, that's the story he sings for them, that she was, you know, pregnant with Peter's child, which is supposed to give him more legitimacy. But interesting that Littlefinger and Cersei have similar methods, right? Similar torture methods. I don't know if I actually realized it on the last read, but so his eyes have been pretty much gouged out, is what that tells me. Uh, He's been tortured into this song he's singing, just like Watt the Blue Bard was by Cersei and the Cattle Blacks and his ripped off nipples. What? (laughs) What? I love that so much. What? Oh my God, I need to make that meme, except like make it a singer, like a bard. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Sansa even like looks at the fingers. There are rumors that Mord took off like three of his fingers and shortened them, and Sansa's looking at it, but the gloves are, you know, too stiff to actually tell. It's a great detail, because considering that this chapter would have actually originally been published alongside those Reek chapters in Dance, and this is something that we should be thinking of in the context of that storyline and his performance uh, as Theon Greyjoy, you know, with that slipperiness of identity, and his own stuffed gloves when he's giving Jane away as Arya Stark. And we're reminded that this is exactly what happened to Marillion, especially on this reread, because it was to get him to lie on their behalf, that torture. Like, this wasn't good. Not that what happened to Theon was good either. And I mean, yeah, Marillion sang songs, and he sang those pretty words, and he was like a shitty person, but yeah, this was a lot. The punishment doesn't really fit the crime in this uh, situation, like, yeah, he was very rapey and was coming on to Sansa. was probably going to, you know, try to pull that crap off before Lothar Brune came and put the hammer down. But, I mean, I don't know. That's not the punishment for this crime. Go, like, geld him. Don't cut his fingers off and torture him into saying a different story. It's just cruel punishment. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, what do you expect? You're talking about the man that sold uh, Jane Poole into sex slavery. So, whatever. That's true. That's true. Belmore and the Royces all agree that Marillion has to die. Peter has Oswell guide the men to their rooms before the main players gather for some wine in the solar because that's right, Littlefinger has decided to serve them lies in Arbor Gold in the solar. So every single time I say it is just like air horns. <laughs> I'm trying. For everyone that's ever not understood my online handle, you guys, this is it. This is, this is what it's from. Uh, the symbolism here is interesting in implicating Sansa. The themes are repeated from the last book as well, something we haven't lost in this translation or transition into feast. The words are the poison in the wine, and this time at a different feast. At least Littlefinger thinks so, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, lies in Arbor Gold being served, the poison's in the words. Exactly. And there are theories about this, uh, that lies in Arbor Gold every time it appears in the series is indication that someone's lying or some sort of deceit is happening, which has only really been, I think, cemented further by Fire and Blood, because we're going to talk about Fire and Blood because it's new things. (laughs) And um, how Ulf the White died. He was given some Arbor Gold, and he was like, you drink it first to the other person who was there that I don't remember. (laughs) 
And it was poison. And they both died. (laughs) We'll get to we'll get to it eventually when we get to that part of the dance. It'll be great. It's gonna be sick. I can't wait. It's gonna be sick. Like Ulf the White. Oh. Nestor says that Bronze Yon, when he comes up with the Lord's Declarant, means to investigate further on Liza's death. He, of course, is bringing the rest of these lords down upon Littlefinger, and they are Simon Templeton, Lady Wainwood, Lord Belmore, Lord Hunter, Horton Redfort, Sam Stone, the Talets, the Shets, the Coldwaters, and even Lynn Corbray, who, quote, mislikes Littlefinger, unquote, but we'll get into that eventually. The Talets. Yes, Ed. All the lords are like, so, uh, what are you going to do now? Because they're going to try to take your place away. And Peter tells them he can only make them welcome as he is but 20 good men <laughs> he then gifts Nestor Royce the gates of the moon saying that yeah this was actually what Liza wanted she it's out of Liza's love that she bore for you and totally plays Nestor like a fiddle and tells him that Liza called him her rock <laughs> Nestor tells him that the men at the gates of the moon were almost seen as being at the same level that the king's house Aaron once were as it was always a brother within the house Aaron who would hold that position. But, of course, John Aaron has no brothers. So, of course, Nestor feels like he deserves it as he, quote-unquote, ran John's realm for him. And this gives us some time to break down something really cool that I'm excited to talk about. I've been sitting here waiting for eight years. So, here we go. The Battle of the Seven Stars. So one of the really interesting things happening in Sansa's Feast chapters and how that and her The Winds of Winter sample chapter are being framed is that it's becoming a story within itself. It's having a magical tourney about to begin, sides being taken, those that are in favor of Littlefinger, those that are not. And Sweet Robin is constantly begging for a story about the Winged Knight, who comes in Vale history before the Andal invasion. But many get confused artist Aaron with the Winged Knight in the Battle of the Seven Stars. Uh, Sir Artis defeats the First Men Coalition in battle and becomes King of the Vale. And we even get mention of this here when the Royces talk about how they were kings 300 years ago. So when the battle shaped up, here's how it looked. On the First Men's side, there was House Royce, House Redford, House Upcliffe, House Hunter, House Belmore, House Coldwater, and House Shet. On the Andal side, there's House Grafton, House Corbray, House Rothermont, and House Templeton, and of course, House Aaron. So far, Peter already has a lot of these Andals on his side. It's the first men he's really working on convincing. He tells Sansa he's well-loved by Goldtown, by House Grafton, and then we learn about his brokering for House Corbray, that he managed to craft a marriage for Lionel, and some of the lords shunned Lionel's wedding. Not all, but some did. Uh, And of course, later on, we're going to learn about his alliance with Lynn Corbray, although it's a very secretive monetary alliance. It's like his, uh, his own brawn. House Rothermont hasn't appeared yet, but Templeton does also support the Lord's Declarant, uh, and that's not to say that that might not change. But so far, we have the Andals sitting on Peter's side and the First Men not. And of course, Mm -hmm. if you think about that a little harder, who has the blood of the First Men that could do some uniting of both sides here? Who would ever do that? Who is that? That's that's really good. The, The House Royce words... Of course, are we remember, so. Hmm, I like that. Uh, Peter and Sansa then put the First Lords to bed, and the Lords are drunk on their words and wine. And Sansa then, as she's getting ready to go to bed, he grabs her wrist and like, let the fuck go. All right, don't do that. Uh, <laughs> get a job. <laughs> get a job. 
And then he lectures her about what happened here tonight. And then Sansa, she's like, why did I feel like weeping? Like, this is good, right? And then Peter breaks it down. That like, oh, it's so sad. Woo-woo. Nestor is proud and prickly, and Liza wanted the castle to go to Robert's little brother. Obviously, there's no little brother for the castle to go to, so it doesn't matter because Littlefinger has to give it to someone. Nestor craves power, since he's the lesser Royce branch, so he wants to believe the words that Littlefinger told him. Sansa figures Littlefinger signed the deed and did not make Robert Aaron sign it to bolster support from Lord Rice and make him loyal to Peter only. Talking again about histories in the Vale, I do wonder if this whole thing is going to bite them in the ass later because we know that Tyrion has promised the Vale Mountain clans the Eyrie and that House Aaron has typically descended from the Eyrie to the Gates of the Moon in the winter. And the gates were, of course, once the seat of the Falcon Kings. And as we learned earlier on in this chapter from an info dump from Lord Nestor. But I, there are two reasons why they moved from the Gates of the Moon to the Eyrie. And one of the reasons is because they're like, I want a cooler crib, just like Casterly Rock or the High Tower. So we're going to have it both in rock and it's going to be really high. Everything. Got both. <laughs> MTV cribs. <laughs> exactly. And it also made it harder, and also the gates of the moon were harder to defend. So Roland I made his decision after the mountain clans first descended upon them, or not first descended upon them, but descended upon them from the mountains of the moon. And of course, we see throughout A Song of Ice and Fire, and especially Sansa's story and King's Landing, how nepotism has just really weakened the quality of people who are assigned to different important positions. For example, like in the King's Guard, the quality is both fighters and good people, because now we're like, what, beating little girls? And I don't know, I'm just wondering if we're going to find out that Nestor Royce wasn't a strong enough choice to be the forever inheritor of the Gates and they're going to like be unable to hold an attack against the Mountain Clan, especially if they come back led in finance by Tyrion Lannister finally repaying his debt. And let's not forget about some of those theories about Timat being the lost heir to the Vale, but we'll get to that in A Feast for Crows too, obviously, with the crazy, uh, crazy discussion of how heirs pass left and right. Yeah, that'll be fun to go into. Littlefinger is really proud of Sansa for figuring out all of these things out and he's like you're my daughter stop like, no this role play is weird you do safe know. word you do know like this isn't real like and he's like no 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 you have to say it's real not because of my weird boner but what if someone walked in and heard you say it wasn't real I'm gonna live this life yeah little thing yeah little fingers just like oh if someone find out found out you wouldn't want to have more blood on your hands <laughs> no guilt <laughs> uh, which is just very creepy in some grooming fucking bs it's like it's your fault no it's not okay anyway sansa worries that oswald knows who she is well duh he's a went like your grandma so i mean <laughs> <laughs> and then little finger as he does gives another villain monologue oh my god i can't wait till he dies he loves these oh. that's how you know he's a villain he loves his monologues he's classic villain and explaining them the speech he launches into is on how oswell and lothar watch each other in gridlock basically so no one can affect their plans trust no one i told edward stark but he would not listen you are elaine and you must be elaine all the time he put two fingers on her left breast stop don't touch her <laughs> Get a job. Stranger danger. Even here in your heart. Can you do that? Can you be my daughter in your heart? I I do not know, my lord, she almost said, but that was not 
what he wanted to hear. Wizened Arbor Gold, she thought. I am Elaine, father. Who else would I be? Lord Littlefinger kissed her cheek. Stop. <laughs> With my wits and cat's beauty, the world will be yours, sweetling. Now off to bed. First of all, this whole, like, I told others, but he wouldn't listen. That's some fucking victim-blaming-ass shit if I ever heard it. You also pulled a knife on him, you fucking prick. Yes. Oh, my God. What a jerk. What a job. Sansa, though, is she showing that she's learning this lesson from Peter? She's really absorbed it now in this day. And like her sister Arya, she, she hasn't really forgotten who she is because she's like, yeah, I'm going to lie by saying that I'm his daughter. I'm a lie no matter what name she wears. And so Sansa makes her way to bed, and uh, she doesn't make it in time to avoid running into Sweet Robin, who huddles up against her breast. Sweet Robin, you can stay, but try not to squirm around. Just close your eyes and sleep, little one. I will. He cuddled close and laid his head between her breasts. Elaine, are you my mother now? I suppose I am, she said. If a lie was kindly bent, there was no harm in it. So there's just this great roller coaster of roles here about, you know, those lies in Arbor Gold. Because in the span of, like, a page, Sansa tells these quote-unquote kindly lies where first she's a daughter of Littlefinger and now she's like a mother of Sweet Robin when really she's just, she's just a maid of three and ten. Man, something that really got me during this is just, like, how slanderous Littlefinger is of her family and how he expects that to just go. Like, Sansa thinks... Ned, Honorable Ned was my father, the man who taught me, the man who passes the sentence should swing the sword, and Littlefinger's catchphrase was, we'll serve them lies in arbor gold. That difference is so breathtaking. Sansa's stuck in the world her father was stuck in growing up, with the man responsible for his death, which is a crime unto itself, and it's a crime that's begging to be undone, which, again, we're gonna talk about this for, like, a couple weeks, and especially in that Wins a Winner episode we're gonna do. I'm really... I've been waiting. We're really for that. excited. I've been waiting for that for 49 years. It's gonna last 73 days. It's a long episode, but you guys are gonna love it. It's a long episode. It's gonna be, you know, like our Blackwater bazillion hours. No, it's not. 112,330 um, hours. So yeah, absolutely. Littlefinger is just the worst. The worst. People think he's gonna survive, dude. He's very telegraphed to die. It's I'm very clear. If you're reading these books and you think he's going to live, I'm sorry, but I'm telling you now, he dies by the end. I, I saw a maid with purple serpents in her hair slaying a giant in a castle made of snow. I, I'm sorry, it's it's written in the books. I mean, it's it's literally it's right the there. You guys should read these books. Have you guys ever read these books? <laughs> Next week, you guys, we're going to get into a brand new point of view. What? Yeah. Oh, yes. We're reading we a brand new POV, and that POV is Elaine Stone. She's 14 years old, and she's bastard brave, you guys, and she is coming down that mountain. Yes, and then Miranda Royce is going to... That's not in that chapter. What? That's not You're talking yet. about bastard brave. Like, yes. Bastard titties. Yes, bastard titties. What is with you in these... Bastard titties. I just can't believe that's like her insult. I know because like, what does that mean? I have bastard titties, technically. Yeah, I, I just don't understand. I'm like, uh. Mm-hmm. Anyway, you guys, this has but, been a great episode. I can't wait till next week. Yeah, stay stick along with us. Thanks again. If you've been with us throughout 2018, here's to a new year, new cheer, new year, new canon, new povs. Yeah, 
in 2019, new hair. Don't care. <laughs> new us. Uh, <laughs> new us. No, Jake. Elaine stoned in 2019. Hey! <laughs> Guys. Yeah, subscribe to us on social media. Keep up with us. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at Girls Gone Canon. You can send us an email. Talk to us on both of these things at girlsgonecanon at gmail.com. Yeah, make sure to subscribe to us on our several areas. You can subscribe. We got Podbean. We got iTunes. We got Google Play. We got Acast. We got Stitcher. We got all of them. Did I say Spotify? I don't know. And Spotify. Big one. I don't know. Whatever. I'll figure it out. Yeah, we got them all. Collect them all. Subscribe to them all. Don't miss out on an episode. We are here almost every week. We're sorry we took a week off last week. It's hard being robots, but we did it. We did it. Though we did put out an episode for Patreons who are $5 and up. We have The Dance of the Dragons Part 2. It covers first part of the dance because turns out the dance is very dense. doesn't cover <laughs> shit. There's so much to go. There's so much stuff. We're never going to finish this. Yeah, Fire and Blood. It's going to go on forever. Part 7 of The Dance of the Dragons. Yeah. <laughs> Patreon, if you want to support us there, subscribe. Also, if you have enjoyed, I guess, listening to Lady Gwyn, which, like, how would you not, on our episode, I joined her a few weeks ago for one of the Radio Westeros quizzes, which are very difficult. I never get 100. And that was very fun. We talked about characters. And Chloe, of course, has also appeared on the Radio, Radio Westeros quizzes. Yeah, Girls Gone Characters. I was a Characters Part 1 quiz, so... Glad yeah. to be in good company. This character's part three, a blessed number. And hey, don't forget that. And hey, if you're around this weekend after you're listening to this and you're bored, throw on some History of Westeros if you didn't already watch it. I'm uh, going to be on the live stream that aired on New Year's Day, covering more of Fire and Blood, covering the end of Magor's reign, and some of Jaehaerys and Alysanne, which I'm very excited about. And of course, 2019 means the final season of Game of Thrones. And... And to prepare, counting down for it, the Night's cast from Watchers on the Wall is doing some recaps of each individual episode of Season 7. So sometime, I don't know if it's already out or if it will be out soon by the time that this releases because I don't know how things work. I joined <laughs> them to discuss the beginning, the opening of Season 7, Episode 1. Fun! That's a good episode to open to. That was actually a good episode. I'm really glad you got that seven. one because I know you and I were talking about it, but man, that, that intro and that outro and her finally coming home, it's real good. Oh my so. god, it's a perfect scene and I don't care that there were no people. It was beautiful. I can't wait to listen to this. I can't wait for it to come out. So make sure you guys check that out from Night's Cast. As always, I am one of your hosts, Chloe. You can find me on the internet as at Lies and Arbor on Twitter, Tumblr, and also at liesandarborgold.com. And of course, I'm the other one of your hosts, Eliana, that you can find as Glass Table Girl on Reddit or as Arithmetric on Twitter. Happy New Year, guys. Thanks so Happy much New for uh, sticking around. It's 301 AC. 